in our conversation just now, right. you were making the point that there's this irreducible, I hate even to use the word contribution of the person. Everything's interpersonally rooted. And that's what I think you're saying you experience. I mean, what you've read of Polanyi and Newbegin, and you're saying, well, this is just what I do in my job, you know? So you're working with real people in a convivial sort of way in GitHub, right? And you're open source thing. That's your wonderful play on words. I mean, hope is a personed affair, <laughs> right? And so you, mm -hmm. you've rooted the open source in the person. So yeah, cool. thank you. Thank you for that. It's good to kind of hear what you think about even the title itself and yeah. thinking like the point of it is to say, well, the source code is written by a person, right? Yeah. And of course, as a Christian, you might say that like our hope is in a person as well. So it's not just like a piece of text. I guess that's a really underlying point is that in my community of programmers, the people matter. It's like a stereotype to think that what matters is the code that you write. Right. This is something I struggle with thinking that my worth as a person or programmer, especially on like GitHub, is how many lines of code that you wrote. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess in academia, it could be like how many papers or books you wrote. It's like very similar kind of measuring. Right. And how do you kind of fight that? I think what you've got going mm -hmm. on in there is what I would say is creative subsidiary scrabbling, which is what. Okay ensembles do together to invite a larger reel. So it's mm. very interpersonal, it's generous, it's creative, it's making. And because that's your job, you just feel naturally at home in that. And I don't think you feel alone. And I think we all struggle yeah. with temptations to, you know, think, okay, am I keeping up or am I worth my salt? But I don't think it's any different in your job than it is in mine and anybody else's. You know, we have to combat kind of that looking elsewhere and just kind of keep our own creativity and our own collaborative mutuality. It takes trust. Going into trust, open source is interesting because like a church, you're asking people to serve or volunteer. There's a few things you're trusting. If you're the one using open source, you're trusting that the person that wrote their code didn't do something bad or maybe i guess there's bugs in it but you're trusting that they're doing a good job and then if you're asking someone to help you're trusting that they have good faith too like i guess ideally that open source doesn't necessarily have to be about money you're not paying someone to do it they're just doing it because they want to well, i mean it could be a part of the job and that's why you know we're basically living off of donations but then it gets kind of tricky well Kind of the crux of it is that the billion dollar tech companies that we all know, maybe not love anymore, <laughs> the Googles and the Facebooks, they're using this open source and they don't have to give back. I mean, that's kind of the whole point. And so sometimes there's this kind of feeling of, should they give back? So how do you think ought to happen about that? Yeah, I wonder, part of me is like freely given, freely received. I think open source is a really interesting way of thinking about grace. The whole point is that they don't have to give back, at least if that's the reason why you're doing it. But at the same time, people need to live, people need to survive. Yeah. And then also maybe you just feel uncomfortable with like, well, they're making billions of dollars and they don't even give. I'm with that. Are they exploiting us? Yeah, I'm maybe it's because I'm older than you. <laughs> you know, I think younger people 
have a different, probably more healthy relatedness to money (laughs) and recompense for their work. But, you know, you also still have a sense of justice and injustice. And I think a large company like that ought to be, I think Mm -hmm. you should be reimbursed for your work. Have you read, I don't know how much you think about artistry or the arts. So I'm writing a book on that right now with Mm -hmm. regard to philosophy. And so I've been reading books by artists on art and kind of incorporating that into my proposals. But there's this one classic book, it's classic now, called The Gift. And it's by Lewis Clyde. Have you heard of this book? Mm, Yeah, I haven't gotten a chance to read it. Happy to hear more about it. It's quite the book, but it starts out with kind of a sociology of an economy of gift. And then it contrasts Mm -hmm. that with a market economy. And then the thesis of the book is that art belongs in a gift economy. Though he does very helpfully say, look, we all have to survive in a market economy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so right. yeah. somehow the artist has to find a way to navigate that. So what I'm thinking is listening to you, the book mm-hmm. might be valuable <laughs> to say what you actually prefer is the gift economy. That seems to go right. with the creativity of what you're doing, but you've got to find a way to survive in the market economy. Yeah. My friend Maggie brought up the book. I have to think back on it. I, I totally agree with that. Well, I wish you well on that because I think there's just got to be ways to skin the cat that cultivate the generosity and the conviviality of a gift economy. Pilate, in his books, what he was puzzling over was how the scientific community works because that requires a free exchange, you know, and so everybody's pulling together to make discoveries. And he thought that was so cool that it actually held a model for how we ought to go at society. And Mm. also a key agenda for him was what is wrong with a kind of a communist or socialist construal of science and why that would never work, you know. Any kind of top-down, right? Yep, that's right. So, you know, he writes The Logic of Liberty, but he spends a lot of time and personal knowledge on just how the scientific community works. And he liked that phrase, the Society of Explorers. And that actually is what the title of the Polani Society originally was, was the Society of Explorers. So that's why we're so cool. (laughs) I think there's a lot of parallels then, because it's like science is a public good, the word we use now in the market, I guess. It's like non-excludable and non-rivalrous. You know, you can't prevent anyone from using your idea. Science is just ideas just like open source once it's out there i can't like prevent anyone from using it whether i don't like them it kind of feels like the water air sort of thing and i think science is the same way and then how do you fund that i guess our only default option is government grants or like some rich person gives us money because they're a patron so you make a product and then you sell your product that's true for me as a scholar and an author I would be effectively doing the same thing because you can Mm -hmm. tap anybody's work with a footnote, right? And then you hope you could sell your books. (laughs) And then maybe you trust that somebody will invite you to come and speak. There's no exchange of of money going on in this yet. I value (laughs) 
an opportunity to talk with not only you for the first time, but your audience, you know, and that's kind of how that goes too. And, you know, our real goal in life, I think, is making a difference in the world. (laughs) So that obviously there's reward in that, but you got to eat. No, exactly. And if you're able to eat, then you are willing to do things for free, quote unquote, or just because you want to, right? Everyone naturally wants to help people. And it's just that we all face this kind of like this tension. I don't always want to calculate, oh, is this worth it? Or like, you know, how much money am I going to make on this? Or like this kind of thing. Be more generous, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something to anticipating that as you are generous, there will be fruit for you. There's Mm. some Bible verses about that. (laughs) It's not the stingy person who is rewarded, you know? Mm -hmm. So in the larger scheme of how reality works, cool things come your way as you bless others. I want to talk more about Polani. So I think that could be a good segue. I feel like there's something there around seeking out, I guess, truth or whatever it is, and it kind of what what talks back to you you've said like how knowing is like a dance i like these you know bodily metaphors yeah and interpersonal ones too thinking about my own proposals about how knowing works and now i'm also trying to write about the real i really in a key way take my original orientation from some of Polani's ideas but i've augmented mm-hmm. them creatively mm-hmm. to really feature the interpersonal as maybe the fundamental dynamic of reality. And, you know, if you just take the idea of face-to-face, and, you know, we're having a hard time, you and I, right now, because, you know, I (laughs) see you, you are so not looking at me. (laughs) And you're looking at me, I'm so not looking at you. (laughs) But the point is, if you were face-to-face in classrooms, I'd make my students look at each other, which is like, scandalous <laughs> you need to turn and look face to face at the person sitting next to you you know and then i feel that face to face gaze you can't stay the same it mm. cannot not change you and cannot not change the other person because faces are like that and so i like to see our orientation mm. to the real and our communion with the real as First of all, interpersoned like that. So, of course, mm. reality changes you as you figure it out, and you change reality as you are engaged with it. I've thought about talking about the face of things. And if you think about even your garden, you've got yeah. to see it, you've got to attend to it. I guess that's a bad metaphor for somebody who lives in New York. <laughs> but you can kind of see it as presenting to you unchanging you so with gardening what you've got is a season by season dance of overture response and that's ordinary life you know so our interface with the real is this intimacy of face to face so i don't know where that leaves us that's beautiful you can refer back to the face of god and now we see in a mirror dimly but then we'll see face to face then I will know as I am known. And I've suggested in my own work that we already know as we are known. It's just that it's going to be really cleaned up <laughs> when we get glory. <laughs> but, you know, we have communion face-to-face now. And I would say we only know as we're known now. What's part of my covenant epistemology yeah. is to say 
that to know is also to be known. I guess we can go into that. We use a lot of words that people aren't probably familiar with. So I have invented this term called covenant epistemology, which stands for my thesis that the paradigm of knowing, and here we're doing epistemology, which is a big hairy word that means right. anything that has to do with how knowing works, right? So how it is that mm. we know whatever it is we know. Covenant epistemology is my proposal that the paradigm of knowing not be the inherited presumed knowledge as information mindset, but rather yes. be the interpersonal covenantally constituted relationship. So if you think, mm. uh, especially of yourself and something that you want to be known, so that would be the knower and the yet to be known, I want to say that the relatedness between those two is interperson-like and it's intrinsically covenantal because you've got a promise to love, honor, and obey what you do not yet know if you're going to invite it mm -hmm. to self-disclose. So that's kind of the, the key to what I mean by covenant epistemology. And I would say yeah. that I got kind of the nugget of that from reading Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, where she talks about stalking muskrats. And what you have to do if you want to invite a muskrat to self-disclose. And what that involves is you've got to surrender your dignity and sit very still and not scratch your nose for a really, really long time, which sounds like covenantal behavior to me. But also embedded in covenant epistemology is always going to be what I call a Polanian component. So Michael Polanyi, your listeners are already familiar with. And he has um, just a myriad of incredible insights and ideas, but one of them was that all knowing is subsidiary focal integration. And what he means by that is that all of our knowing has a two-level structure of attending from and attending to. So relying on clues or skills or powers to attend to, to find, to shape a transformative integrative pattern. And I think we all know kind of the experience of having an aha moment mm -hmm. where, where yes. things that didn't add up suddenly coalesce and everything gets transformed. We even call it an epiphany, right? That little moment of insight really is the key to seeing what Polanyi has in mind by subsidiary focal integration. So if you're learning a skill, mm. I talk about bike riding a lot or reading a book or whatever, right. can remember what it was like beforehand when things did not add up. So you're fixating on the bike, your body is not working out for you, you're sure you're going to die by, you know. And then also, <laughs> the words of the authoritative guide make no sense either. If somebody tells you to balance, well, that's just the point. That's just what you don't know, right? So even the language makes no sense either. And so there has got to be this integrative transformative moment where all the things that don't add up as you focus on them, as you somehow scrabble to get inside them subsidiarily, Polanyi uses the word indwell, indwell them, that actually invites the integrative pattern to grace you. <laughs> you know, it's not linear and it's not, you can't count on it. You really are begging <laughs> for there to be a revelation. <laughs> it's coming and everything that you've been scrabbling to put together. And so again, you hear that covenantal 
placing yourself where reality might grace you to show up. So that's subsidiary focal integration. But even when you've had the, the aha moment and you make your pronouncement, there's all this stuff that you rely on that you can't put into words at the same time that you rely on it. It's like your pronouncement crests all that stuff that you've given yourself to. And this is the part in Polani that just made my skeptic heart sing. <laughs> when you get to that aha moment is that opens worlds of possibilities. And so Polani yes. had this magical sentence. He would say, you know, you've made contact with reality. And he's a discoverer, right? <laughs> That's his job. You have an unspecifiable sense of future prospects that you can't even name. So there's always this sense of future possibilities. And that's what confirms to you in the moment that you've had the aha moment. So mm -hmm. in other words, every pronouncement, when you make a discovery and say, oh, da 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 da, what that does is it kind of opens the world to you. And that, as I've written about that over the years, which that actually was what I wrote my dissertation on was this contact with reality, that yeah. started, seemed to me to be person-like. So in a first book I wrote called Longing to Know, I said, it's not so much that reality answers your questions as that it explodes them. Reality really is in the driver's seat, so it walks in and takes over. You know, if I get to be friends with you over the years, you know, the more I get to know you, the more bottomless you're going to seem. But I'm not going to say, right. oh, I don't know you. I'm going to say, oh, it's mm -hmm. precisely because I know you that I have a sense of your inexhaustive coolness. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, that's so true. When you're meeting someone, your friend, your partner, or God, you want to know them more, even though you already know a lot about them. I guess the more you know about them, the more you would. Yep. I would hope you would want to know them more. Mystery that's got a face that you're familiar with. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Tying all that you just said with technology, the metaphor we use of knowledge is the database now, right? You know, control F to search through things instead of the sense of community or communion with that thing that you're trying to learn. I think it's interesting, like, how does technology shape how we do epistemology? And clearly, it makes us treat everyone like a resource in a database rather than like a person. And I think that's why I'm so interested in your work, because I want to know as a person, a technologist or whatever, how do we maybe design or work on things that are doing that less, I guess. I think of doom scrolling, the assumption behind that is that, that more information is better. That if I find this random piece of information, it'll make me feel better about what's going on in the world. It's sort of true that the more you know, the better, but there's so many other aspects of knowledge that matter. Well, can I say a couple things? One <laughs> is, I think the key on a Polanian approach and a Mekian approach with regard to the database is to see that as subsidiary. So the trick is, what we have been missing in our modernist understanding of epistemology is we have just presumed that knowledge has to be focally explicit. What, what Pilani was saying was, knowledge is focally explicit actually blinds you to the real. 
and it's actually meaningless. It's totally meaningless. So what your database requires is you to wear it subsidiarily and creatively to find patterns and find people. You know, you can think of great movies here where, you know, somebody's got to be found before the time runs out. But see, nobody in typical epistemology has this category of the subsidiary. Your database is a fabulous tool. But the problem with that the poison, the skewing of modernist epistemology is this idea that knowledge is focal information that you then total up and kind of get this comprehensive mm. election and then right. that's your goal. No, it's... your goal is communion with the real. And that's mm. way richer, way richer than comprehensive information because you've subsidiarily indwelled it artfully, creatively, and it opens up wor new worlds to you that are highly personed. That makes sense? Yeah, I think it's like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? The parts are the subsidiary, and then the whole is what happens when you are able to indwell those clues right. and like come up with something new and use your judgment. And I think another related topic with tech is like, you know, we have all our algorithms and apps that tell us how we should think or what we should wear, or what we should eat or watch. In some way, we are outsourcing our ability to choose, right? In other words, we're letting other people make our mind up for us. Understanding how we actually know, we should trust that we can make decisions. Robots or whatever we want to call it, AI, they don't know us better than ourselves. We right. can use them, like you said, as tools. That's all they should be. But these tools have become so powerful, we let them become yep. ourselves, right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. So technology is kind of like chocolate <laughs> in that, <laughs> you know, you could get addicted to it, <laughs> right? And you could fixate on what wasn't meant to be fixated on. And mm, so mm. I think technology can dehumanize, especially when you're in a milieu that says, yay, robots. In that article I shared with you, I referenced an old book that came out when I was 21. It was Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's a very good book. He loved his motorcycle, but he was trying to work through this kind of killing, suffocating spirit of technology. Back in his day, you know, the big bad word was the system. When the system yep. was killing <laughs> us, think of one flew over the cuckoo's mm. nest, and there's some similarity there. But there's something that can be deadening. I would say with Persig, it's not technology, it's the technological mindset, which is epistemology, mm. not technology. But mm. we, I think we're vulnerable right. because, here's another, and Sherry Turkle said this in the piece I shared with you too, and she's a sociologist who says, she said, I'm not opposed to technology, but I'm pro-conversations, face-to-face conversation. <laughs> And yes. I argued in that piece that personhood is irreducible, but it's also fragile. I doubt we're going to get addicted to persons unless that's some emotional fusion or something like that. But true personhood is what we crave rightly. And it should make us more ourselves, not less ourselves. But it does mm -hmm. need to be cultivated, especially in this era where, hey, everybody walking down the street is looking at their device. 
you know? Right. So we are not making face contact. And then COVID comes along. And yeah. that, you know, makes the whole thing worse. So you need to have a fire pit outside so you can have a face-to-face -face conversation with people. I was going to say, how have you feel like been able to cultivate that sense of belonging in this time? My life kind of changed because of COVID. And I also had the opportunity that I could pick up and move to my daughter's neighborhood. Mm. And that was able to happen only because I was taking this gradual phased retirement from Geneva College, where I've been professor of philosophy right. for 17 years. And so I can look out this window down there and my daughter and grandchildren and son-in-law, they live three blocks down there. So it was like I literally moved so that I could have them in my bubble, mm. which is a big deal. Thanks. And obviously people ne can't necessarily do that. And I would think in New York, you, you need to cultivate balconies that you can hang out and talk to each <laughs> other. You know, you got to find some place where you can meet that's covid approved but mm -hmm. you do i think need to make the effort to do that so my daughter and son-in-law in st louis they're artists and she's an engineer but they literally set up their backyard so they could have fire pit conversations and they have faithfully had their artist friends and other friends over mm -hmm. and they sit out there in the cold wrapped in blankets by the fire so in this new place where I live, it's an old place, and it's like the first ever time in my life I've had a real front porch. And to have somebody over to have a cup of tea is quite doable. I think the colder weather's probably good for us anyway. Yeah. <laughs> to get that face-to-face <laughs> thing is just really, really important. But I'm in no way going to despise Zoom and Twitter. I mean, Henry... I'm get, just getting the privilege of meeting you, and you live in New York. How could I ever have gotten <laughs> yeah. to you? So you settle for Zoom if that's what you got, but actually it, it offers some other possibilities, like you can connect with audiences that otherwise in person would be costly and dangerous mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. I guess the goal would be to yeah meet in person if it was possible. You know, one reason I moved so merrily, and I don't move easily, let me tell you, but I moved because <laughs> I was isolated. And yeah. as a mom, uh, there's mm -hmm. one move to make, and that's to be near your daughter. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. So that's like all I need. I don't even need to see her. I just need to know she's down there where I can get to her. If uh. I but I do feel you got to have some real faces in your life. Some real faces who see you. And see, that's, I think, mm. philosophically profound. You've got to see yourself being seen by another mm. who's got regard in their gaze as they see you. You have to. Because how else can you know that you're even there if you don't see yourself mm. reflected in the gaze of someone else? Wow. Yeah, that actually reminds me of something I read from Yvonne Illich. He was saying, like, you know yourself in the pupil of the other in front of you. So, very similar. As a child growing up, that seems to be <laughs> one of the things I was puzzled about was, you know, am I even here? <laughs> you know, I call it the noticing regard of the other. Mm. I think that's profoundly logical. I think so. Uh, you can compare that to the modern epistemology. You are the detached observer 
you're focused on looking at other people. And if you think you're this disembodied entity, you're not even realizing you could be someone that could be looked at mm-hmm. and known, like this whole one way versus two way. Yep. Plus, what we're so good at in modernity is voyeurism. So we've got this mm. objective observation. I mean, yay, the observation word, but that is so not the kind of scrutiny you want. <laughs> not the thing that's going to make you be you. Wow. What's going to make you be you is the loving regard of the other. And so the gaze of the other, that torpedoes this observation scrutiny scrutiny thing. And again, back to the modernist mindset, mm. Or we think that only focal information is knowledge, mm-hmm. that automatically deals in this observational voyeuristic sort of a thing, control, power, manipulation, modification, all that stuff, all that baggage is connected to this defective modernist epistemology. And so, okay, epistemology is what I do, so I think it's the cause of everything. Yeah. <laughs> no wonder that we've had the horrific things happen. You know, just like think of Black Lives Matter. That's somebody Mm -hmm. finally speaking up about abuse of power, right? Well, the abuse of power Mm -hmm. just goes with the modernist epistemology. You know, human mastery over nature. That's what Francis Bacon wanted. If you start with knowledge as power, you end up with power. Where do we end up with knowledge as dance? Well, maybe when the Glenn Miller Orchestra comes to town and you get to go dancing, <laughs> you know, and then you say, oh, this is the way the world works. <laughs> you, know? you, you mentioned like voyeurism and I immediately think of surveillance and it's like the same yes. sense of power. Everything is a camera, whether it's a company, government, your own family, we're all tracking each other. Throwing algorithm. Yeah, it's like surveillance as care or algorithm as care versus a person right yeah and that tool which could be used to track it's like the word track even just sounds bad you know (laughs) i'm so not up on movies there's a lot of post-apocalyptic films that just continue to play out this kind of control it's endemic i think of McLuhan here like the medium is the message right that ties into plani where he talks about if you use the hammer then the hammer becomes a part of your hands or your body and you are indwelling the hammer but if technology or media is an extension of your body they can also be an amputation of your body well i would say it's idolatry you know mm. if you're properly subsidiarily indwelling something it shouldn't be your master right because mm, it's so, subsidiary, supposedly <laughs> that's right mm. so it would only be an inappropriate fixation on what ought to be subsidiary that would lead to that. So I think what the modernist mindset, the modernist epistemological default, as I call it, actually is, is just that myopic fixation. It's actually blinding us to the real. It's no mistake Mm. that this little girl, meaning me, wasn't sure that reality was outside her mind. And that's, Mm. you know, that's a cry and shame. <laughs> Thinking about idolatry, the way we define it in the faith point of view is just like putting something above what is ultimate, God or whatever. So when we say idol of money, and the same thing with the subsidiary, we're not saying technology is bad. It's just that we have made them too important, right? There's a balance right. that needs to be had. Otherwise, 
it makes it sound like we're just being critical of everything, right? Well, we hear idolatry and rightly think about that in reference to God. But I think we can also just think about it in reference to knowing plain old stuff. Mm -hmm. If you were just totally enamored of your database, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? There'd be something (laughs) out of whack about that, (laughs) you know, and it would blind you to the real. And I'm not talking anything religious here at all. Mm-hmm. But you have got to indwell it. I used to say to my students, that periodic table of chemical elements, you know, you got to wear it. You've got to see the world from it. Mm-hmm. Same with the multiplication table. You have to see the world from it. And then that opens the world. But if you were to light a candle to the periodic table, there'd be a real problem there. And not just the religious part, it would be blinding you to actual chemistry. Another thing I wanted to talk about was maybe like commitment and how that relates to Polanyi. I mean, just generally, it's hard to commit to things given like open source. Like, why would I want to put myself out there to join a project or do something when I know I might not get anything back? So there's an aspect of like faith and trust. Yeah. Okay. Commitment. That's a great one. And I'd also like to add the word consent. So I had two childhood questions. One was whether there's a world outside my mind, but the other is how do I know that God exists? Although I knew lots about the Bible and went to a Bible-believing church and all of that. So in Longing to Know, which was my first book, that really is me trying to justify my own Christianity to myself. And it's Mm -hmm. a book for people considering Christianity who have questions about knowing. And I really do see it as a response to Newbigin's challenge about what whatever it is that's stopping the ears of people in the West so they don't even hear the gospel, and his saying, look, it's epistemology, we got to fix that. But Polanyi, in talking about tools, you'd mentioned about the hammer, and if you think about a bicycle as a tool, you have got to entrust yourself to the tool. So that's more evident with regard to a bike, that, that somehow you've got to give yourself to that bike and trust that it's going to hold you up, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he defined commitment as our manner of disposing ourselves toward the world. And I thought, oh, you can grow up with all this religious jargon and not exactly know what it means, faith, commitment, stuff like that. But if somebody says, look, you know, it's giving yourself to a bike so that you can ride it, you know? (laughs) That means that that whatever Christians call faith really is this ordinary, everyday sort of an act. And, oh, yes, obviously, knowing God, he's going to transform your life in a way that knowing your bicycle isn't. But what what I needed to know was that knowing of all types had things in it that look like trust and faith. That was really the beginning of my approach in longing to know. And then over years of thinking about this, I've also began to realize that part of what's going on with commitment is this moment of consent. You have got to say yes to something. You've got to say yes to the bike or, or mm-hmm. you're not going to be a bike rider. You've got to say yes to the authoritative guide who's trying to teach you to ride the bike, or you'll never get it. So my students, when they came to class, I would say, look, (laughs) your consent is absolutely critical to this. And, you know, I hand you your syllabus 
Somehow mm-hmm. inside you, you've got to say, okay, I'm going to do what she says. I'm going to trust that if I say yes to what she's asking me to do to these assignments, that I'll get where I need to go. And I would argue that modernity is characterized by saying no, where we need to say yes. And actually, there's mm. a term for that. It's acedia, which is one of the seven sins. It's often known as slothfulness or laziness. Mm-hmm. But one philosopher, Joseph Pieper, has defined acedia as refusal to consent to being or to the real. And so what you've mm. got in modernity is effectively a living out of a big fat no to the real. What we have to start to do is have the humility and, and the risk-taking responsibility to say yes, to say, I do, right? We give our consent for the real. So commitment and consent are huge, and they're not particularly essentially religious. Obviously, you've got to consent to God, but you've got to consent to your garden if you're going to grow flowers. <laughs> so you've got to give yourself in trust, but there's this kind of, yes, I'm going to reciprocate. And I've actually felt in my past and have read about this too, that some people you can see, they are so struggling with themselves. It's like they are living out one big no to themselves. Okay, here's a movie that <laughs> I saw a long time ago, <laughs> which was filmed in Pittsburgh. That Joker was living out one big no. I mean, he was, he was obviously just like a tissue of no to everything. Right. And, and that's what made him such a despicable character. Mm. Philosopher Eleanor mm. Stump has coined the term willed loneliness. And that's what's going mm. on with Joker, you know. And, you know, all of us can have periods in our life where we have got to retrain ourselves to say yes when our typical response to that point has been to say no. But knowing requires that. You have got to give yourself to, uh, the prospect of a college education, if you're going to get it, or you've got to give yourself to whatever your job is for you to get somewhere with that. So, I think of other words like humility, kind of laying down like a surrender to something, yes. which is, I guess, it doesn't have to be faith in God, but just trust. And I guess that is the opposite of control, knowing that yes. I can't guarantee it's not certain, having confidence. It, it might not happen. And actually taking a risk, but I'm still willing to go out of my way to like, to try this thing in serendipity, right? And so in my approach to philosophizing, I mm-hmm. really want to spend a whole lot of time talking about ordinary acts of knowing. But I feel like every ordinary act of knowing has this kind of silent witness to the reality of God. So it's like intrinsically, Mm. for you to love a garden well, or to be an artist, or to do the work that you're doing, you know, there is this surrender, this commitment, and then this sense that when you have a discovery, it's a gift from on high. The whole thing Mm. is so uh, naturally open to the gracious in-breaking coming of God. (laughs) You know, Mm. which I'll look to him to do, but I feel as if every act of knowing bears witness to that. 
It's like you have to have your hands out to receive a gift. And it's that gesture that opens you up to a reality that's far beyond what Hmm. you might even have been dreaming of. I've worked a lot with James Loder's book, The Transforming Moment. And what he argues in there is that ordinary acts of knowing have this structure, just like I'm describing it. And then in his account of the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit, like God showing up, (laughs) you know, so ordinary acts of knowing, that's kind of like the grammar or the alphabet. And sometimes the Holy Spirit commandeers that (laughs) and the Lord comes. So the Emmaus Road would be like that. It's an ordinary act of knowing. But the one who is revealed changes everything, right? So that's an experience of the convicting presence of God, which we all have at some time or other. I pray. I really like this quote from Augustine, which I'm sure you've mentioned many times, but the whole believing first in order to understand. And that's, it's so, I remember hearing that the first time I was like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, of course I have to know it and then I'll believe it. That's just the modern epistemology. And that's just so counter. I guess that has to click too. Well, and I like to help people think about riding bikes Mm -hmm. because then the believe in order to understand is Mm. essential. You cannot ride a bike if you do not exercise trust. You can't. You've got to trust your authoritative guide. You've got to trust the bike. You've got to trust the world. You've got to trust your body. You know, yeah. which is takes some doing. <laughs> Trust is of a piece with rationality. It's not opposed to it. You can't right. have rationality if you don't trust. It's like when you're trying to learn how to program, it's just another language, like learning like Chinese or Spanish. And there's a guide right. as well. It might be your yeah. friend, it might be a teacher, whatever. And it's like all those symbols or whatever, they don't make any sense. And then at some point it does. And yes. then now you can say, I know this language. And in that moment of the aha, uh-huh, it's like a door mm-hmm. opens and you're caught up in a larger reality. Then they can start thinking from that view. It's almost like the aha moment is really over fast. You put it mm. all together, the door opens, and then you're into another world. <laughs> right? I, I don't know how, what else to say there, except that's pretty wild. And there's like this split yeah. second moment that you are looking eye to eye into the face of the real. It's this I see you moment from Avatar. Mm. That aha, face to face encounter. You're looking deep into the eyes of the real that's looking back at you and has been looking at you since before you saw it. <laughs> you know? And then. The world opens. And so when you realize you're keeping your balance on a bike, the world starts to come to you in bike paths. That's future possibilities. That's how you know you've made contact with reality. I started riding city bike. I was like, oh, wow, this actually is true. I will go to this different part of the city just because I know that I can do it now. And those paths are always there to begin with. Henry, tell your listeners mm-hmm. that I'd love to know them in a more direct way. And- yeah, definitely. I'd love for more people to know about your work. Thanks so much for having this conversation. Great conversation, I think. It's really fun to talk to you. <laughs>